series through the Gospel of Matthew. This is message number 18, entitled The Hard Way. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 20. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. So Jesus certainly has not laid out an easy way in the Sermon on the Mount. And the last time we reviewed many commands and conditions that seemed to be somewhat risky for us to follow, like uh, King Amaziah's quandary when he had hired the soldiers from the northern kingdom of Israel at a very high cost, and God sent word to him not to go to war with them. And so in order to obey God's word, that would cost him and the southern kingdom of Judah dearly. Well, the risks here that Jesus lays out are certainly not all financial, but that would certainly be included. And when we think of Jesus' command not to pursue the accumulation of wealth on the earth, and um, again, these things can seem somewhat risky. Well, into this risk comes this command at the beginning of chapter 7 and this encouragement to um, pray and to ask our Heavenly Father for the things that we need. Because his love is greater than the love of earthly fathers, his love for those who trust in him is greater than his love for the rest of his creation, like the birds and the flowers and such. And he will not give us what is harmful to our souls, but gives us what is good and what is wise. And we can know that we're not going to truly lack anything that we need to fulfill his word. So we have the inexhaustible riches of our creator that are underneath and behind us and really there's no greater security that we could have and when we think about it this way then the way of Jesus certainly doesn't really look all that risky like it may have seemed. Um, I read this from Matthew Henry and many of you maybe uh, have seen or heard of his commentary uh, lived in the 1600s and this is a, a, a quote from his father, whose name was Philip Henry. Um, And so Matthew Henry wrote this, to encourage himself and others to works of charity, he would say that he being his father Philip. And this is what his father would say. He is no fool who parts with that which he cannot keep when he is sure to be recompensed with that which he cannot lose. And I don't know the original source of that quote, and if he was referring to these verses um, here in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount or, or not, but it certainly is very, very fitting when we think about Jesus' command to lay up treasures in heaven rather than treasures on the earth. Well, when Jesus 
concludes the Sermon on the Mount. And it's really what we have beginning with verse 13 to the end of, of chapter 7. We got this conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. And it involves a series of contrasts. And the point of the contrasts is clearly showing who will enter his kingdom when it comes and who will not. Now, entering the kingdom means life, and that comes out in the passage we're looking at here this morning. Not entering the kingdom means destruction and fire, as we see here as well. Well, verses 13 to 20 speak of two ways and two different kinds of fruit. And the reality is that not everyone who claims to be on the way to life in the kingdom, actually is. And it's also true that not everyone who claims to teach others how to enter the kingdom are going to enter it themselves. And Jesus warns about both in this passage. In verses 13 to 14, Jesus talks about the narrow way. And in verses 15 to 20, gives the warning against false prophets. So let's begin looking at the narrow way. Here with verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. So Jesus begins here simply issuing a command to enter the narrow gate, or the straight gate. Now, there are a couple of different words that are used here. In other words, um, straight for the gate is used and narrow for the way. And those are different words. Um, wide is the gate and broad is the way that are, that are both used. And again, those are different words, though they, though they all have similar meanings. So the word that's used here, uh, straight, the straight gate, is a, is a word that means to be narrow. It means to be restricted. It, and it's here contrasted with the wide gate, which is a word that means broad or it means spread out. And so the underlying assumption as we begin reading this part of this passage, the underlying assumption is that these gates lead to entrance into the kingdom. And in fact, entrance into the kingdom has been a constant theme here in the Sermon on the Mount. Began all the way back in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 20. Um, we'll see it referred to here again in verse 21, which we're not getting to um, this morning, but, but it will come a little bit after. And here in verse 14, it is equated with life. So that is the, that's, the, that's the theme goal, if you want to think of it that way. When Jesus is talking about the Sermon on the Mount, it's entrance into the kingdom when it comes. And we'll talk a little bit more about it being equated with life in a moment. So if you think about this um, narrow gate and this wide gate that Jesus is talking about, it's imagery that maybe suggests to us a city. So imagine an ancient city that is surrounded by a thick wall, so it has its fortification, it has its protection um, from enemies. And at certain points along this wall, there's going to be um, large, heavy gates, and these gates will be open to allow the flow of traffic into and out of the city. Uh, These gates were probably going to be along main roads, and and they will be main entrances. Um, They'd be fairly obvious and easy to find. They would be um, generally known by people in 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 the region. 
However, at, at times of danger, times of, of war, in, in certain cases, those large gates might be shut and, and they might be barred, but there would also be within this wall perhaps some small doors that are more difficult to find and they're not generally known, but they would permit access to those who knew where they were. Well, the, the point is that many think that the wide gate that opens to this broad way is the way to life in the kingdom. Now, the word for broad that he uses, it means that it's spacious, it's, it's roomy. In, in other words, it's an easy way to go. It's, it's certainly convenient and accessible. But notice what he says about it. He says it's the way that leads to destruction. And there's many that go that way. Now, the word for destruction means utter ruin. It means utter destruction. And here he's referring to the condemnation of being shut out of the kingdom, which is later equated to being cut down and thrown into the fire in verse 19 that we'll get to in a few moments. Verse 14. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So Jesus is here explaining that the narrow gate leads to the difficult way that leads to life. So again, you do have some some different words here. Straight is a a word that has the idea of of narrow or confined. And this word for narrow is actually a a word that generally when it's used to describe space, um, it it would refer to something being being very tight and very um, cramped. But it's also a word that when used more figuratively, refers to afflictions or to troubles or to suffering tribulation. So in other words, Jesus is describing this way as being a a way of difficulty. It is a hard way. And Jesus highlights three different types of difficulty in this Sermon on the Mount. So he he refers to persecutions. So think about Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verses 10 to 12, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So one of the difficulties that Jesus has highlighted as he has been giving his law here in this, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, is that we're going to face these kinds of persecutions in this present age. And another type of difficulty that we are going to encounter will be the sort of difficulties that come with those interpersonal relationships and our opponents or our enemies, if you will. Matthew chapter 5, verses 39 to 44. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. You have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, 
Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Adversaries. And then another type of difficulty along this way that has has been brought out in this Sermon on the Mount will be the last part of chapter 6 in what we might just call the worries of life. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? So aside from facing persecutions um, against us for the sake of Christ and for the sake of righteousness, aside from facing uh, opponents, people that uh, have set themselves uh, against us, have made themselves adversaries to us for, for, for whatever reason that make things difficult for us, and, and aside from that, we also have the worries of life. How, what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? What are we going to drink? How are we going to live? How are we going to take care of all of these needs, the necessities of life? We've got all of these difficulties that Jesus has outlined in this very sermon. And now he says here that you must enter into that straight gate, that narrow gate, because the way is difficult that leads unto life, and there's few that find it. So even though... Jesus has certainly given us um, warning about a number of difficulties in this present age, of which we'll see another um, in, in just a few moments. Even though he's given us warning about a number of these difficulties, he says here, but you, you need to enter into that, that gate because that's the way that leads to life. Now, life, when he speaks of leading to life, he's talking about eternal life. Everlasting life in the kingdom of Christ. So from very early on in the Old Testament, eternal life in the kingdom is that future reward, that future goal. So if you think about all the way back to Genesis chapter number 13 and verse number 15, that there God promised Abraham that the nation from him would have the land promised to him for an everlasting possession. We can think about Job, Job chapter 19 verses 25 to 27 where Job envisions seeing his redeemer on the earth in the resurrection. After his body has done gone to the grave, Job is is talking about. So clearly from very early on in the Old Testament, the concept of life is an everlasting and indestructible life in the kingdom of God on this earth. Well, clearly, Jesus is speaking of life in this concept of the Old Testament as he equates it here in the Sermon on the Mount with entering into that kingdom and the idea of future reward and future blessings. Now, the picture of life in the future kingdom may be clarified somewhat in in the New Testament, but certainly is never altered from what we are presented with in the Old Testament. And Jesus is not certainly saying anything to change that here. So clearly, Jesus is saying that there is one way that leads to life, and other ways lead only to destruction, no matter how appealing it may seem. And then we come to another difficulty, and that 
of the presence of false prophets, beginning with verse number 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. So Jesus warns here to pay attention. This word, beware, pay attention. Discern false prophets. And the word in the Greek there would be a pseudo-prophet. It's, it, it, it's a pretender. It's one who claims to receive messages from God. One who claims to speak for God. One who claims to teach and direct others on how to live and how to inherit eternal life. They tend to look good. They tend to sound good. And maybe they even make some sort of a show or demonstration of power that seems to certify them. Now, this is the first mention of false prophets here in Matthew's gospel, but obviously there is a rich history of reference of false prophets, particularly as they caused trouble for those of Israel throughout the Old Testament. So think of a couple places, Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 27 to 28. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeking, uh, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord hath not spoken. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 3 to 4. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones till the, mor- to, uh, till the, um, till the morrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary, and they've done violence to the law. So again, you go through the Old Testament and you're going to see constant warning and reference to false prophets that were um, among the people. And as you turn the page, you come into the New Testament and and here we are seven chapters into Matthew and we're encountering a warning about false prophets. And that's going to continue as you go on reading throughout the New Testament. And you also notice here how that Jesus sort of taps into that shepherd and sheep imagery. And you saw that in some of the References that I just read, he says, they come in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they are ravening wolves. So the shepherd imagery also taps into the prophecy and the expectation of a true shepherd that is to come. Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 8, As I live, saith the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became meat to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. Down in verse 24, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it. Verse 28, and they shall be no more a prey to the heathen, to the goyim, to the nations. Neither shall the beast of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and none shall make them afraid. In other words, false prophets have devoured the, the people of, of Israel for long times in their history. And of course, Jesus, again, taps into this imagery as he sends out this warning against false prophets and, of course, alludes to the fact that he is indeed the Messiah, the true shepherd. Well, false prophets pretend to show the way to life, but they're actually the very predators that sheep need to be protected from. They come in sheep's clothing, he says, but they're really 
wolves. Verse number 16. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? So Jesus explained that we can discern false prophets by their fruits. Now, fruits is a, is a common image um, that speaks of works. It's, it's what, what is produced by these teachers. What, what is the result of their teaching? What is um, produced? What are the works of their lives? And, and so on. So Jesus leads to his illustration here and is appealing to common knowledge about vines and trees and such that produce fruit according to their nature. So wild thorns and wild thistles, they don't produce grapes or figs. In other words, they don't produce the fruit that we are looking for. The point, again, is that things produce according to their nature. And that's the point that he's making about these false prophets. So he says in verse 17, even so, Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. So he then begins to speak about good trees, healthy trees, and unhealthy trees or diseased trees. Good and healthy trees, he's saying, produce good and healthy fruit, and diseased trees produce bad fruit. So this is similar to the point that James made in his letter that we looked at not too awful long ago, that true faith produces good fruit or it produces good works. As James makes a contrast in his letter between true faith and dead faith, a a faith that does not produce good fruit or it produces bad fruit, whatever the case may be. So Jesus is saying very similar here, that an evil or a, a diseased tree cannot produce good fruit. He says in verse 18, A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. And again, the point's very simple, that, that these trees bring forth according to their nature, according to what they are. So a healthy tree is going to produce healthy fruit, and a diseased tree is going to produce diseased fruit. And this is what he's talking about with these false prophets. Verse number 19, every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So Jesus is also giving warning here that every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So the, the image that he's using here, so if you imagine a, a farmer that has an orchard and he has a, a number of fruit trees, whatever, the, whatever the, the type of trees might be, and so if a farmer has an orchard of trees producing good fruits and he has some bad trees that are, that are mixed in among them that are not, they're, they're not producing um, either not producing fruit at all, they're not producing um, good fruit, usable fruit. And, and obviously this is uh, a farmer, this is going to be his, his livelihood. And the, the point is, in order to maximize the production of his orchard, he's going to cut down 
those trees that are bad trees. He's going to remove them from the orchard. He's going to um, cast them on the, the brush pile and he's going to set them on fire and burn them up because they're useless in terms of producing good fruit. Now that's the image that, that Jesus is referring to, how that every tree, if it doesn't bring forth good fruit, it's going to be cut down and it's going to be burned up. And of course, this, um, this fire that he mentions also echoes from much earlier in chapter 5 and verse number um, 22. And he's obviously referring through this image, he's referring to a judgment and to a condemnation. So these false prophets then would be those that might appear to be on that narrow way, on that hard and difficult way, but are in fact on the broad way that leads to destruction. And then we get this summary that he gives here in verse number 20. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. So false prophets are certainly something that can be difficult to detect. Jesus said earlier that they wear sheep's clothing. Or in other words, they look good according to what they want to portray, much like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. So as you, as you read the Gospels and you think about the Pharisees, of course, we've all been trained. If, if you've had um, upbringing and, ex- and exposure to church, we've all been trained. The Pharisees are the bad guys. And, and we immediately think that. We see a mention of a Pharisee and we think of them as the bad guys. But they really weren't viewed that way in that first century culture. They were, they were looked on as being um, really the standard. They, they were holy and, and pious and, and righteous, and they, they, were, the, they were sort of the, the leaders of the um, movement to purify Israel, to return Israel to the law and to the, and to the traditions. They, they were held in high esteem by the people. I mean, even Jesus' disciples at times... Um, obviously we're, we're quite uncomfortable um, that you ha- Jesus has offended them by the things that he said. Well, the Pharisees in Jesus' day were actually these false prophets and teachers. They, they were actually wolves in sheep's clothing. And so as you read the gospel accounts very carefully and you see what, what Jesus had to say to them, you realize he actually exposes their righteousness is being fraudulent. And Matthew chapter 23 stands as, as, as one of the sternest condemnations and rebukes that we have in all of the, all of the New Testament where he rebuked the Pharisees and, and exposed their sins in, in many different ways. Their righteousness was fraudulent. Well, the people were fooled by them. People were misled by them. They were deceived by them. Well, Jesus says here that we can know false prophets by their fruits. Well, obviously, on the, on the one hand, then, what the, the fruits would relate to what they're saying and to what they are teaching. Are they truly teaching according to the word of God? Is it, are they teaching their, their speculations, their imaginations, their insertions, their editing of God's word? Are they teaching their traditions and, and their customs? What, 
what are they teaching? What are they saying? And we know that we saw, uh, you can go back to the Old Testament and you can find that um, as the standard that was given to Israel. Are they speaking according to God's word or not? What are, what are they saying? Well, obviously, we can, we can know them by the fruits. In other words, what, what, what they're saying and, and what they are teaching, which we should be comparing to the word of God. Now, one of the difficulties when it comes to false prophets can also be our personal knowledge of them. So if you think about the way that Paul warned the elders of the church from Ephesus in Acts chapter number 20, he says in verse 29, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So on the one hand, False prophets are out there. They're out there, and they're, they're trying to get in. They're trying to get in and to spoil the flock. So that's obviously one area of false prophets we have to be concerned about. But Paul went on there to say in verse number 30, Also, of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And it certainly can be much more difficult when when it's not someone out there that's trying to get in, but it's someone in here that rises up and begins to speak not according to God's word and to draw us away after something that is not according to God's word. Well, obviously, they can be difficult to detect. But again, Jesus says, every good tree brings forth good fruit. And a corrupt tree or a diseased tree is going to bring forth bad fruit. And you shall know them by their fruits. And so we are, or we are charged that we must be discerning with those that we are hearing and those that we are Um, sitting under as far as their teaching is concerned. And you can think about um, Paul, how that he commended those of Berea, um, how that they were, he he said they they were more noble. They were searching the scriptures daily to see whether or not the things that Paul was telling them was true. They were searching those scriptures. They, They were carrying diligently in inquiry into the things that Paul was teaching them. And so we are to know false prophets by their fruits. So if we think about this passage, and again, there's a little, we have another, sort of another section left as this contrasts continue that, that finish out the Sermon on the Mount. But as we think about the, the starting part of this conclusion of this sermon, Jesus is saying very plainly, there's only one way that leads to life. And there are many other ways to go. And not only are there many other ways to go, but there are also many others who are trying to get us to go other ways. So if you think about, for instance, and and obviously the Sermon on the Mount, which has a lot of of parallels with with wisdom literature in the Old Testament, uh, and particularly as you, you come down to the end here, but if you think about the book of Proverbs, and particularly um, the, the first nine chapters as, as Solomon is addressing his son. 
that there's a continual warning that there is a right way. There is a way that leads to life. And there are also other ways that don't lead anywhere but to destruction. And that there are many that are trying to get you to go in these other ways. Uh, One of the ways that um, Solomon portrays wisdom is as a woman that's crying out uh, to go in the right and the good way. But then there's also another woman, a, a woman folly that he, that he speaks of. And, and she's enticing and trying to get others to go another way. So there are, we are surrounded continually by voices trying to get us to go some way. And Jesus is, is warning us here that there, that there are many ways to go, but they lead to destruction. There's only one way that leads to life. And the very fact that we are warned about false prophets means that we are required to be diligent in studying God's word, in seeking his kingdom, in seeking his righteousness, that we might be able to discern those who would lead us astray. One of the problems that we have is, I guess we could attribute it to human pride, but we just don't, we don't think ourselves to be deceived or to be, maybe we don't think of ourselves to be deceivable. Oh, well, surely no false prophet is going to, um, you know, pull wool over my eyes and, and, and I'm not going to go in the, in the wrong way. We just don't think of ourselves as, as being able to be led astray. And if you think of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, for instance, Paul expressed amazement. He, he expressed astonishment that they had so quickly been led astray in the matter of the gospel by those who had corrupted that message of good news, of salvation through Jesus Christ, they had corrupted that message by adding circumcision to the way of salvation. And Paul, Paul was astonished that they had so quickly followed after that and accepted it. So we do have to be very concerned about those things that we hear and, and whether or not it is according to the word of God. Now, warnings against false teachers are common throughout the entirety of Scripture. I mean, Old Testament, New Testament, again, this is the first place it comes up in, in Matthew, but it's, it's going to come up more and it's, it's going to continue throughout the rest of the New Testament as well. And the fact that there are so many warnings repeatedly of false teachers and those that would lead us astray and lead us into error tells us that there's just a seemingly endless supply of people who would try to persuade us to believe one thing or, or another or to go one way or another that is not according to the word of God. And so Jesus used that word beware. We, we might say be on guard, be careful, pay attention, take heed is what Jesus is saying. And we are told ultimately in this passage that we need to be sure that we are in this narrow way, this hard way that leads to life. That is the future reward.